You're listening to the Bonfire Podcast, fanning the flames of the gospel to the ends of the world. Come on, let's dive into the Word. Welcome into the Bonefire Podcast, everyone. We are so glad that you're joining us again for another episode. Uh, we would like to encourage you to, to come on in and stay a while, listen to what we have to say. If you have not done so already, we would encourage you to go ahead and hit that subscribe button um, on any of those uh, podcast applications and become a subscriber. When you become a subscriber, you'll get these episodes dropped to you each and every week when we release those, which we do every Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And uh, also, if you haven't uh, taken the opportunity to connect with us on Facebook, we'd ask you to do that as well. Um, that's a good opportunity for you to go there. The videos are posted there. And if you would share and you would like uh, those videos, that actually helps us uh, increase the presence um, of a bonfire out and about and gets the word out further. So if you're hearing an episode that you really like and you want to have someone else listen into that, that's an easy way that you can go in there and you can share that directly with um, just one specific friend, or you can share it with all the friends that you have there in Facebook. Well, Dad, we've got an um, announcement we got to make again about the Holston Creek 5K. Um, mm-hmm. So the Holston Creek Cross Country 5K, that is. And so that's coming up in the month of March. It'll be March 27th at 9 a.m. And that's going to be held at the Holston Creek Park in Inman, South Carolina. And so um, it's a really neat race. Um, I, I like to say it's a run, walk, crawl. It's for all ages. Uh, doesn't matter what your level of fitness is. It's a great time to come out and to get a little exercise. Hopefully we'll have great weather um, at that time of year. And um, it's a really neat race with the way that that ends, Dad. Uh, share with them about how that, that uh, race ends. Well, that's right. Just before the completion of the race, uh, you come to a certain point where you stop and you put on a two-by-four uh, across your back, and you carry that two-by-four to the very end of the race, the finish line, and then you lay that two-by-four down. Now, that two-by-four, that makes us think about the cross that Jesus carried upon his back as he walked through the city of Jerusalem on the Via Della Rosa uh, on the way to Calvary where he was crucified. And, of course, it symbolizes the burden of our sins that he was carrying, for he was carrying far more than just a wooden crossbeam. He was carrying our sins upon his back. And we think about that load that Jesus carried, our sins, when we carry that two-by-four. And then when we lay it down, we have a magic marker, and we can write on that board uh, something, uh, a praise to God, or just anything we want to write on that board to rem- to remember uh, the race and to remember what Jesus did for us. And we use those boards from year to year, so the very board that you'll be carrying on your back will be a two-by-four that someone else carried at a previous race, and you'll be able to see what was their thoughts when they carried that two-by-four and laid it down too. Yeah, so a really neat race, uh, neat ending there um, with uh, carrying carrying your own cross there. Uh, to the finish line. And so uh, registration currently is at $25 uh, fee uh, per person. Uh, with that registration fee, you, of course, get your, your race uh, entry, and you'll also receive a, a free pair of uh, racing socks um, that will have the logo and everything on there for you as well. And so, um, Dad, we'll be there. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, Bonfire Ministries is going to be sponsoring, so we'd love to have you come out. And even if you're not running, like to just have an opportunity to meet you and talk with you a little bit. Um, and then all proceeds um, are going to a good 
call. So all of the proceeds for this race are going to uh, the Holston Creek uh, Youth uh, Mission Project uh, that will be going on uh, hopefully this summer. Hopefully COVID will, will allow us to have that, uh, but that will be going toward the project that they'll be doing this summer. So uh, please uh, come out and support, um, and it'll, it'll be a great time there. Well, Dad, we got a, a lot to cover today, so we're not going to waste too much time and kind of uh, get us into our, our series here. You know, when we uh, left our last episode, we were covering – uh, the the end time events we're looking at the uh, vile or vile or bold judgments at that point, um, and so we're going to be get, kind of picking up where we left off there. So we're in the series, the coming king, the the lion of Judah, and uh, as I said when we left off, we were in the fourth quarter, and uh, in today's episode we're going to be uh, really coming to the end of the game. You know, you mm-hmm. may uh, say that this is the the two minute warning period right here, right. those last few minutes of the game. Um, that we're going to be talking about today, because with with just a couple minutes left on the clock, uh, what will happen is the Antichrist and his forces of evil will rally together, and they'll attack Israel, God's chosen people. Mm-hmm. And as the Antichrist is trying to wage war against God's people, well, Jesus Christ Himself is going to split the sky wide open, and He's going to return uh, to defend His people and to uh, fight against those evil forces. Now, you may be wondering, well, how does the game end? And, uh, well, it's, it's not going to be much of a contest because uh, all of the, the Antichrist and all of the forces of evil, they're going to be no match for the Almighty, for uh, Jesus will come and he will rescue his people and he will crush evil in defeat. And Jesus Christ will be victorious and he will reign as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Um, so this climactic clash of good and evil is commonly referred to as, as the uh, Battle of Armageddon. So right. that's really going to be the focus of what we're going to be talking today, the Battle of Armageddon and the second coming of Christ. And so, you know, Dad, as we're talking about these events, this this kind of breakout of battles and wars that's occurring on the earth, there's also a, a, a scene that's taking out in heaven. That's right. Uh, that's playing out as this is all coming together. And I was hoping that you could share with our listeners what's happening in heaven as as these forces are aligning together. That's right. Well, while men are gathering in Israel to make war against Jesus Christ, his saints, and each other, there will be another gathering going on in heaven. Those invited will gather for a wedding, the marriage of the Lamb. Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 through 10 tells about the wedding that will take place in heaven toward the end of the tribulation. Now, according to John, the wedding will be the wedding of the Lamb. I want you to listen to verse 7. The Bible says that let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. Now, who is John the apostle referring to when he speaks of the lamb? He's referring to Jesus Christ. When John the Baptist, another John, was preaching, he saw Jesus coming toward him one day and he said, Behold, the lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. All the lambs slain on Levitical altars in the Old Testament pictured Jesus Christ, the Lamb, who would lay down His life on an altar, the altar of the cross, once and for all to be the supreme sacrifice for sin. Now, at this wedding that John mentions that takes place in heaven at the end of the tribulation, the groom will be Jesus Christ and the bride will be the church. 
Now, to understand this wedding that will take place and the reason that John does not give us any full details of it, like the local newspaper does following a wedding, you have to understand something about the Hebrew wedding custom. Hebrew weddings consisted of three phases. Uh, First of all is the betrothal, which happens often when uh, people are just children. They're betrothed to one another. Uh, One man will troth his uh, daughter to another man's son. Well, during the betrothal period, the bride and groom live separate from each other. Sometimes the betrothal period lasts for a long period of time. Now, couples that were betrothed to one another were legally married, even though they've not come together and consummated their marriage through the honeymoon. Well, following the betrothal period, the second uh, phase of the Hebrew wedding was the presentation. The festivities connected to the presentation would often last for several days. It preceded the final phase, which was the ceremony, the exchanging of vows, which was followed by a feast. Now, in relation to Christ and the church, the church was betrothed to Christ by his sovereign choice in eternity past and will be presented to him at the rapture. When Jesus steps up from off the throne to come rescue the church before the beginning of the tribulation, he will be coming to get his bride. The final phase of the wedding, the ceremony, followed by a feast, will take place during the end of the tribulation. Many believe the wedding feast will extend throughout the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth that will immediately follow his return. Now, in Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 through 10, John doesn't describe the ceremony that will take place, but he does mention the garment that the bride will have on and the guest who will be present for the ceremony and the feast afterwards. Now, in relation to the garments that the bride will wear, John writes in verses 7 and verse 8, And his wife has made herself ready, and to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. The garments of the saints who make up the bride are described as the righteous acts of the saints. Now, this doesn't refer to the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which was imputed to us the moment we trusted Him as our Savior. No, John says they're the righteous acts of the saints. Folks, as Christians, our garments for eternity will reflect or show what we did for Jesus on earth. In other words, the reward that we will receive for what we do for Jesus on earth will be the kind of garment we will wear for eternity. Some people, after they go through the judgment seat of Christ, where their works for Jesus will be examined, will be saved as by fire. In other words, they won't have much to le- left to show for their life on this earth because if a wrong motive was found by Jesus connected to any good work, it won't be counted and they will suffer loss. However, Others, after they are made clean through the fire of Christ's judgment, will have a lot to show for their life on earth because what they did for Jesus was did with the right motive not to receive the applause of men, and they did it to their best. So considering this, dear Christian, you, by the way you live your life right now, I really think this, are determining what you'll wear for eternity. Based on how you are serving Jesus, now what will your wedding garment look like one day? Well, we've looked at the garments of the saints or bride, but now let's consider the attendants or the guests. In verse 9, John writes, 
Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. Now, in this verse, the call does not refer to the bride, but to the guest. The bride doesn't get invited. Now, who are the guests? I believe that the guests will be those who had faith that was accounted unto them for righteousness before the birth of the church at Pentecost. The guests will also include the tribulation saints and those believers who live through the tribulation and go into the millennial kingdom in the earthly bodies. Well, following the ceremony, the presentation feast that will take place in heaven, the church, the bride, will return to earth with Jesus to continue celebrating and feasting. And after the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth is over and the new order comes with a, a new heaven and earth, the marriage will be consummated. Oh, that's a, a great uh, background there of what's happening in heaven. And again, it's it's kind of a, a, a two, um, two-part two story, right? Uh, so there's this scene playing out in heaven uh, that is is obviously very beautiful uh, because heaven's a beautiful place. Right. And then there's the reality of what's happening down on earth, which is a much darker and evil uh, type scene that's playing out. And so that's what we're going to be going into as we talk uh, the, today and discuss about uh, the Battle of Armageddon and the second coming of Christ. Now, we've kind of set the stage for for the events that's happening here. And so there's four key things that we want to talk through as we look at the Battle of Armageddon and the Second Coming of Christ. We want to look at the place, or better yet, the places where all these events will take place. We want to look at the players um, who will be in the key roles involved in, in this uh, these events here at the end times. We want to look at the prevailing power of Christ. And then lastly, we're going to look at the purpose. What is the purpose behind all this? What's happening here? And, and how is God working through uh, this uh, battle of Armageddon? So, Dad, let's jump right in and, and let's talk about the place or the places where uh, this is all going to take place. All these events are going to take place. Now, as we get ready to talk about that, we probably need to preface that there's kind of a, a misconception that's out there. Uh, we always say the Battle of Armageddon. Right. And uh, when you say Battle of Armageddon, that refers to kind of one singular event. But um, really, what we're talking about here is probably better described as the War of Armageddon, right? That's right. Because there's going to be kind of these multiple uh, conflicts uh, or, or battles, a series of battles that are going to be taking place all leading up to that last final uh, stand that evil is going to make against Christ when he returns. Mm -hmm. And so for that reason, um, it's not just a single battle. It's going to be um, activity happening all over the place. Right. As you can imagine, the central place that will be involved in this is going to be Jerusalem, right? That's that's mm -hmm. the holy city. It's going to be right in the center of all of this. But the Bible really focuses in and speaks to a three places um, that are going to be kind of integral to to what's happening here as we talk about the Battle of Armageddon and, again, the end times when Jesus returns. The first one that um, is referenced is, of course, Armageddon itself and the uh, Valley of Estredon. Um, and this is north of Jerusalem. And so I want us to go back, Dad, and look at the verses that we looked at last week. And so if everyone will recall... When we talked about the sixth bowl uh, that was being poured out upon the earth, we saw that the Euphrates River dried up, mm. and that the Euphrates dry, uh, River dried up for a purpose, and that was for the kings of the east to move uh, move across, um, and they were going to be gathering at a place called Armageddon, right? right? So let's go back and look at verse 14 uh, through 16 here in the book of Revelation, and uh, this is again chapter 16, so verse 14 says, for um, they are the spirits of the demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and all the whole world to gather them together for battle 
um, on the day of God Almighty. We're going to drop down to verse 16, and they gathered uh, them together at a place in Hebrew called Armageddon. Now, the word Armageddon actually comes from the Hebrew, uh, and there's two words that make that up. It's Har Megiddo, which stands for or means the mountain of Megiddo. Now, uh, at this mountain of Megiddo, at the foot of it, there is also a valley known as the Valley of Australia, and it's uh, also called the the Valley of Jezreel. And um, it's sometimes referred to as also the plains of Megiddo. Now, this plain is 20 miles long and 14 miles wide. Now, Dad, what I found interesting is Napoleon was once quoted with saying that this particular area is the most natural battlefield on the whole earth. Now, that's kind of a chilling statement coming from a guy like Napoleon. Right. Um, but it's in this area, as we know, as we see here in, in chapter 16, is where all of these armies of the world are going to congregate together as they begin to wage war against God mm-hmm. and his people. Now, when we, uh, and, and, and I, I don't know if I mentioned appropriately, but this is north of Jerusalem, okay? Mm-hmm. So I want everyone to take notice of that. The second place that the Bible references is the Valley of Jehoshaphat. So when we look at Joel, Joel references in chapter uh, 3, verse 2, that God will enact his judgment in the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Now, that could be a physical place. It actually is. It re- resides on the east side of Jerusalem and runs between the eastern wall of the city of Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. And we know that the Mount of Olives is very important because that's where we learn that Jesus is actually going to touch down on the earth, is going to be there at the Mount of Olives. Uh, But Jehoshaphat also means God's judges. So it could be that that's more of a a symbol. We we don't really know. Um, It it could be either or. The third place that the Bible says that there's going to be activity happening is in a place called Basra or Edom. Isaiah 34, 1 through 5, and 63, uh, verse 1, tells that when Jesus returns, one of the very first places that he will go will be to Basra. Now, that's the holy city of Eden. Now, Basra is south of Jerusalem, and it's close to the rock city of Petra. Now, why would Jesus go to Basra? Well, we believe uh, that uh, Petra could be the the place where the chosen people are kind of hiding out Mm -hmm. and trying to be protected. And so he's going to go there because there's obviously going to be uh, some of uh, the Antichrist and, and his army are going to be down there trying to attack uh, God's chosen people. So he's going to go there to protect his people. The bottom line when we talk about uh, these areas and what's going to be happening here in the end times is that there are going to be multiple scrimmages uh, or skirmishes, if you will, and, and battles happening, and it's going to be across a wide area of Israel. Um, it's been said that, that these battles will span an area that's 180 to 200 miles north to south and about 100 miles east to west. Mm-hmm. Now, with uh, these places being uh, looked at here, let's let's look a little bit closer at the players, uh, the, the players that are going to be here. Now, again, we're going to reference what we talked about last week, Dad, and uh, when we were talking about that sixth bowl, um, the sixth bowl was poured out again. The Euphrates River was dried up, as we just said, and that, that was for the kings of the east to move across. Right. And so I want us to go back and just look a little bit higher than where we were this past time. This is uh, verse 13. And it says, I saw the three unclean spirits of frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they uh, are the spirits of demons performing signs, which go out to the kings 
um, of the earth and of the whole world and gathered them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. So we see here that the Antichrist, with the help of Satan and the false prophet, are going to unite the nations of the world to go into battle against God's chosen people. And all those who have taken uh, the mark or worshipped him will join his army. So the players are going to be the Antichrist, the false prophet, and the nations of the world and also God's people, because they're going to be kind of the target of what's happening here. But that's not all, Dad. We are going to be a part of this as well, and the most notable player in all this is going to be the Lord Jesus Christ himself, for he's going to return to destroy evil, and we're going to be coming with him. That's right. With that being said, let's look at the prevailing power of Jesus Christ. So, uh, Dad, you were reading in, in Revelation chapter 19 about the marriage feast, and that was leading right up to the section of verses we're going to go into right now, which is going to be uh, starting in verse 11. But as we, before we read that, we really got to just again summarize what's happening here. So we have. Um, we have the Antichrist. The Antichrist has uh, gone out with the false prophet. They've worked their signs, their wonders, and they've uh, influenced all of these kings of the world that they need to turn um, their efforts toward destroying God's people. And they've uh, mounted their armies, everyone with the mark of the beast and such have joined in and these forces and are marching toward uh, the Holy Land uh, to enact uh, just war and violence upon God's people. Mm-hmm. And um, so as these wars are being waged, as, as, as Satan and the Antichrist are waging wars, we're going to see uh, that Jesus himself is going to return to the scene, and he's going to um, take over and uh, ultimately destroy evil. So let's look together now, and let's read verses um, 11 through 16. Again, this is Revelation 19, 11 through 16. So I'll read that to us now. It says, Now I saw heaven open up, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like the flames of fire, and on his head was many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except him. He was clothed with a white robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in white linen, uh, clean white linen, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh the name written, The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Now, Dad, when we look here um, in Revelations, I think it's safe to say that nowhere else in the Bible do we see uh, Jesus described with such might and such power as when he returns. And just think about it. We, we've we done this kind of two-part session now. We talked about the Lion of Judah, which is what we're talking about now. We talked previously about the Lamb of Bethlehem, right? right. The first time Jesus came, he came as a, as a meek, tiny little baby, and no one really knew much about it. Uh, the only people that were there were some animals and a couple of shepherds uh, to, to understand that uh, the king was, was being born to this world. Um, but when he comes the second time, he's going to come um, just as a powerful warrior, the king who will defend his people, and again, who will destroy evil forever. And uh, there will be no doubt of his arrival when he comes again. That's right. Well, you know, you mentioned when he came the first time, like that of a lamb, uh, shepherds were the first ones to see him, other than his uh, mother Mary and, and Joseph. But when he comes again, every eye is going to see him. 
Revelation chapter 1, verse 7 says, Behold, he, talking about Christ, is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. That's, every eye is going to see him. Every eye is going to see Again, it's not going to be some quiet um, quiet night uh, like it was there the first time that it came. Dad, as I was reading these uh, verses, the other thing that pops out to me, as we've already kind of alluded to, is in verse 14, we see that Jesus doesn't come alone. Right. Right. Um, we see that we are actually going to be with him. When I say we, uh, God's uh, children, those who are Christians who were raptured, uh, those who were uh, converted during the tribulation and ultimately paid uh, paid the price with their life, um, are going to be traveling with Christ, coming with him in the clouds, and we're going to have our own white robes, and we're going to be on our own white horse as well. What I find interesting is that, uh, you know, we won't have to fight, though. That's not our purpose. We're not, although it calls us an army, we're not there to fight. God doesn't need our help right. in order to fight this battle. He's going to have it under control all by himself. Uh, we will be there just to stand with our king and to witness his power. Yeah. You know, going back to the fact that Jesus is going to appear when heaven opens riding on a white horse. Now, previously in our podcast, we talked about the four horsemen. Now, this is the fifth horseman. All right. In ancient days, if an army won a great battle, a great parade would be held upon their homecoming. The general would lead the procession riding on a white horse as a symbol of victory, and he would be followed by his victorious troops. In similar manner, when Jesus returns in his homecoming, Jesus will lead the armies of heaven riding on a white horse. Now, some may be wondering, will Jesus actually return riding on a white horse? Or is the horse symbolic like the horses in Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 through 8? Well, I personally believe that in this instant, Jesus will actually be seen coming back on a literal white horse because Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16, speaks of things that are not symbolic. The Bible in these verses, in verses 11 through 16, gives us a detailed description of what Jesus is going to wear and how he's going to look. Now, you mentioned a while ago that the garments of the saints that will be the army. And the army will be composed not only of, of the church, the saints of God, the bride of Christ, but angelic armies. And there are myriads of angels. And also perhaps even those that died having, having uh, been justified by faith prior to the church beginning. And all of these will be returning. They will be wearing... Now, I wear a white shirt when I preach on Sundays, generally. I don't plan on getting that white shirt dirty. You know, white is something that's hard to clean. Well, these people that will be returning with Jesus wearing their white robes, they're not going to get them dirty in battle because, as you said, Matt, the one that's going to do the fighting and win the victory is the Lord Jesus himself. Do you want to talk about what his robe's going to look like? Yeah, and his his robe, it says, is going to be dipped in blood. Uh, so it'll be a white robe as well, but it will have uh, dipped in blood. And that's a, a symbol of, of, of victory. Uh, but it's also going to be a symbol of the justice uh, and the uh, judgment that he's going to uh, to pour out upon uh, those who come against him uh, during that time. Also, when we think about his his robe, Jesus's robe being dipped in blood, that blood is going to come from the blood 
of the armies of the world uh, that's going to come pouring out for them, that's going to splash up on the garment of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus has one weapon that he's going to use. Matt, share with us about that weapon that he's going to use to slay the armies of the world. Yes, uh, let's look at that weapon. So we see it um, here in the verses, uh, starting at verse 15, it says, Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and, and with it he will strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod. Um, he himself will tr- treads uh, the winepress with fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And so we see here that... Um, you know, God's not going to fight this battle like you would think. He doesn't need uh, He doesn't need tanks and and bombs and and all of these things. His His battle is going to be with His words. Dad, I, I liked what I saw. One commentary uh, wrote. It says that you know, um, as as all the enemies of Earth are amassed against Him, it's amazing that there's no record uh, of a struggle being uh, taking place when this happens. In fact, all Jesus has to do to completely uh, vanquish um, the enemies is just to speak the words, drop dead. Uh, so it's in his words, in his ability to speak, uh, he will be able to to clear uh, these uh, these enemies and these armies that are coming against him. That's right. You know, Jesus using the, the sword that proceeds from his mouth is really a fulfillment of a great messianic prophecy given in Isaiah 11.4, which says, And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall slay the wicked. Now, the sharp sword that I take as a preacher, as a Christian, is the Word of God. Now, Jesus will need only to speak, as you said, Matt, and the armies of the world will fall dead to defeat. Christ doesn't need carnal weapons. Please notice that He is the only one, as we mentioned, who engages in conflict. The armies merely view, take in the battle. Now, most battles are fought by armies with the general tucked away, but not this battle, not this battle at all. I want you to listen to verse 16 of Revelation chapter 19. Also, it says, and he, Christ, has on his robe and on his thigh a name writ, you mentioned this a while ago, Matt, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. As Jesus leads the charge, the name on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is presenting himself as the absolute sovereign upon this earth. That's exactly right. And so as this uh, battle is, is unfolding, and again, as we've kind of alluded to, there's not much fighting going on on the side of Jesus Christ. He's able to just command uh, with his words w- what needs to happen. There's two things that, that um, are also going to occur that I, I think are fairly notable. And the first of those are, is found in Revelation 19, 17 through 18. So let, let's read that together. It says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried with a loud voice, saying, All the birds that can fly in the midst of heaven come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. So, Dad, what I see here is there's a a dinner bell that gets rung, basically. That's here. right. That's the angel right. says you can come and get it, that there is about to be a feast, um, and that's going to be a feast for these birds to come and to, to feast upon all of this carnage uh, that's created as, as God uh, enacts his judgment upon these wicked people. You were doing some research on, on the birds. Tell, that's tell right. our listeners about that. Boy, this is amazing. 
Israel acts as a funnel for birds pouring out of both Europe and Asia as they move south toward their African wintering ground. Now, the bird migration along the length of Israel has been termed, get this, the eighth wonder of the world. Every year, more than 500 bird species pass overhead going from Europe to Africa. It has been estimated during the migration system some 500 million birds pass through Israel. A huge number of of, of raptors, that's birds of prey, pass through Israel. Israel is one of the best locations for raptor rapture, is called, owing to its location at the junction of three continents. The Israel route enables them to avoid a potentially long and hazardous sea crossing over the Mediterranean. Bird watchers in Israel report seeing some 35 species of birds of prey making their way each season. In addition to this, the Israeli vulture population that had been on the decline has now been on the rise. It was reported in August of 2020 that Israel's griffin vulture population, which is still relatively small, has reached an eight-year high. It was reported in May of 2019 that the Egyptian vulture has returned to the Carmel region in north Israel. Now, you know, this is where the main part of the Battle of Armageddon or the War of Armageddon is going to be held in the northern part of Israel. And so the Egyptian vulture has returned there. And it went extinct, that vulture did, in the 1960s, but now it is returned. And get this, the Nature and Parks Authority in Israel has been working hard to conserve and rebuild the vulture population in Israel. Boy, they're in for a feast one of these days. God is preparing this. All of those birds that fly over Israel already, the eighth wonder of the world, all the birds that fly over it go into Africa, and all the birds of prey, and now they're on the rise, and even the park and the nature authority in Israel is helping them uh, to build up in population. Boy, God's got all of this worked out just in time. That's right. And it's, it's, these are amazing uh, statistics and, and facts that you found there, uh, particularly when you bring it back to the scripture that we just read. Right. right. And you can just see that God's hand is there and he's, he's putting everything in position. Uh, and that's really been what we've talked about almost throughout the entire series that we've been talking about. You can see uh, as these end time events are getting closer, that all these things are just beginning to kind of fall in place. And the stage is being set for ultimately uh, the climactic return of Christ and the the uh, destruction of evil, which is, is something that we're going to look at um, here uh, now. So the second kind of uh, key thing that happens um, in the midst of this battle or as a result of the battle um, is that the Antichrist and the false prophet are going to be captured. And so let's look at verse uh, 19 through 21 here. It says, And I saw the beast, the king of, this, of the earth, uh, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeds from the mouth of him who sat on the horse 
and all the birds were filled with their flesh. And so, again, we see a couple things happening here. Verse 19 uh, tells us, uh, and that's really kind of a pivotal verse there. Uh, So remember, we have um, the Antichrist and his armies, their uh, focus when they first started was that they were going to attack God's people. Right. And uh, once they see the sky split wide open and they see that Jesus is, is coming, uh, the Antichrist and the false prophet uh, uh, turns his army and says, you know what? Leave God's people alone. We're going right for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, begin to, to mount attack against the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. As we can see here, it doesn't work out too well for him. Um, we see that they are captured, the, the false prophet and the Antichrist, and they are thrown into the lake of fire. Now, the interesting thing there is they're thrown into the lake of fire, and that is where they will stay. Mm. And we'll talk about... Um, you know, uh, what's going to happen in our next podcast with, with Satan himself, because he's not included in this just yet. Um, but the, the Antichrist and the false prophet and all the, the chaos that they've created and all the, the evil and, and the, the vileness um, gets captured and gets thrown into that lake of fire will they, where they will remain. That's right. That's right. You know, today it seems like with all the filth, ungodliness and violence, you know, is there any hope? People are so discouraged. It often looks like the other side is winning. An old poem says, God's plan made a hopeful beginning, but man spoiled his chances by sinning. We trust that the story will end in God's glory, but at present, the other side's winning. I want you to know, the other side might be winning right now, but in the end, Jesus wins. I read that There were some seminary students playing basketball at the Denver Seminary, and so they saw the janitor who was reading his Bible. And so one of the students went up to the janitor and said, what are you reading? The janitor said, the book of Revelation. Well, later on, students came back, saw the janitor still reading and said, hey, do you understand it? He said, yes. And so they asked, well, what does it mean? The janitor said, Jesus will win. <laughs> and that's what Revelation is all about. Jesus is going to win. That's right. And many of you may ask, you know, why are we studying this? Why, why If we're not going to be here, why does it matter? We've talked about this a couple of times. And, and it, Dad, what you mentioned right there is probably one of the most important reasons why we, we study uh, the book of Revelation and end times is because it helps to know how it all ends. That's uh, right. It gives you a whole lot of confidence uh, as you go through day to day and you see all the terrible things that are happening in this world and how wicked the world is and how bad sin is. And it's very easy to get discouraged right. um, and when you think about all that. But when you know how it ends, it, it definitely gives you a different perspective. Um, and so that's one of the primary reasons we like to study this is to understand and know how it all how it all plays out so that we can have that confidence. Well, Dad, we're almost out of time, and so as we kind of begin to wrap up our session here, uh, we want to look at the purpose. Um, and so, uh, you know, God could have destroyed evil any way that he, he chose. So the question is, you know, why the Battle of Armageddon? What, wh- why did he choose that way? And we honestly don't know exactly why, uh, but I can come up with kind of three things that the, the Battle of Armageddon accomplished. And the first thing is that Armageddon concludes uh, Jesus' just, uh, judgment on the nation of Israel. We have to remember that uh, the nation of Israel has rejected Christ. And mm-hmm. so uh, the tribulation uh, has been described as the time of Jacob's trouble. This is right. you know, um, judgment that's being uh, cast out upon uh, 
um, the nation of Israel because they've rejected the Messiah. Right. And so the Battle of Armageddon is kind of bringing that to an end and bringing that to a close. The second thing that I, that I see that Armageddon does is it marks the final judgment upon uh, the countries that persecuted Israel. Uh, remember all of these countries, even today, right. uh, Israel's a hated place, even in today's time. Oh, and, yeah. And that's not going to get any different or better as we move forward in time. We can see here in the text that we've been studying uh, that they're going to try to be, uh, the nations of the world are going to turn on, on Israel, and they're going to try and tack, and they're going to persecute um, Israel's because of being God's chosen people. And so this will mark the final judgment upon those countries. And then the third thing I see that Armageddon does is it obviously constitutes a formal judgment on all nations that rejected him. And uh, so that's that was what we see is him uh, enacting his his wrath, his holy judgment upon uh, the world that has basically turned from him. Remember when we were talking about all those judgments uh, that went through when we talked about the the seal judgments and the vile judgments and, and so forth and so on. And many of those times, uh, the people recognized that it was the hand of God that was doing these things, and they refused to to repent and to to turn. And so, um, this is kind of the final. Judgment, bringing that all to conclusion um, on these uh, the the wicked world that rejected uh, Jesus Christ and what He did for them. You know, also when I think about the Battle of Armageddon, and then uh, really all that's taking place in God's judgment uh, during the tribulation period, uh, there have been so many people through the years that have persecuted the saints, that have persecuted Christians, and you know here they are. A lot of those tribulation saints that died, they're up there in heaven saying, "How long? How long?" Yeah, and so and the voice of the martyrs, right? The that's, voice of the martyrs. That, that's what they cried. How, how long before we we have uh, some justice and some uh, some revenge? Basically, that's right. And the Bible says, "Vengeance is mine," saith the Lord. I will repay. So He repays those Christ rejectors that persecuted the saints of God, His children. He repays them. Far more. He does far more to them than they ever done to the saints. He repays them. You know, we've talked about a lot of things, son, over the the last, I don't know, couple of months now as we have uh, talked our way through the book of Revelation. And, of course, we started out with talking about how, you know, things are being set right now with Israel being a nation. For 1,900 years, Israel was not a nation. I mean, the things that we're talking about that's going to happen, and particularly with Jerusalem and Israel being the center focus, you might say, in Revelation, that couldn't have happened apart from Israel being a nation. And then we've seen many other signs of things that are taking place now that will only intensify during the Revelation during the period that Revelation talks about. Well, in the movie, The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, the great wizard sees everything coming rapidly into place for the great battle, a battle for the survival of Middle-earth. At one crucial juncture, he says the board is set, all the pieces are beginning to move. Using this chessboard metaphor, we could say the same thing about our world today. The board appears to be set. The pieces and the players are in place. And the four horsemen, the riders who get it started, could start moving at any point. All we're waiting for is the rapture of the church to heaven. And I believe that what we're witnessing today in the world points to what the Bible predicts. That's exactly right. Well, uh, Dad, we're again almost out of time here, and and so we're going to begin to wrap up. Uh, now, many of you may be saying, okay, well, that's the end of the game. It's over. 
and um, and while you're right that God's judgment there is, is is He's come back and He's enacted His judgment, there's still more to come. Right. And so you'll have to tune in to our, our coming episode where we'll talk about the next things that happen um, in this end time scenario. We've got probably a couple more episodes to get through the rest of that, so I encourage you to come back and join us again, um, and then we will have uh, done a fairly thorough uh, coverage of, of all those end times events in the book of Revelations. That's right. So, Dad, if you don't mind, if you'll pray us out of here. Right. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come before you today, we thank you, Lord, for giving us the the honor of being able to have a podcast ministry to get the message out about Jesus and what Jesus has done for us, to pay the penalty for our sin, to make it possible for us to be rescued from our sins and to be uh, restored back to a relationship with you and have heaven as our home. We're grateful, Lord, that we are recipients of your grace, those of us that have accepted Jesus uh, and accepted him as our Savior and Lord, who have turned from our sins and have surrendered to him and follow him and serve him. But Lord, our heart goes out towards those that are not ready should Jesus return in the clouds right now in the rapture for his church. Lord, those that aren't ready is going to be left behind to endure the affliction that's that's spelled out for us in the book of Revelation during the tribulation. And Lord, it's going to be a horrible time. We don't want the listeners to our podcast to be found in that condition, to be left after Jesus comes back in the air for his church to endure the tribulation. Lord God, it's going to be an awful time. We see how things are going to wrap up at the end. Jesus will win, but many will give their lives for the sake of serving Jesus during this awful time rather than uh, than serve the Antichrist and end up in destruction and the lake of fire with him. God, I just pray for those that's listening to this podcast today that are not ready, that they will turn away from their sins, acknowledge Jesus as their Lord and Savior right now before Jesus comes back. Because, Lord, indeed, the pieces on the chessboard are all set out. And, Lord, they're getting ready to move. Help us, God, uh, to serve you. I pray, God, that those that receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior, that ask you to forgive them today, that ask you to come into their life and change them, the Lord will hear from them. They will we'll hear from those that have received Jesus. God, use this podcast ministry, this all of these talks through Revelation, also to encourage uh, those that are pastoring overseas that don't have the, the opportunity to have uh, a library full of books and resources like we have at our disposal. Lord, they're leaning upon the things that we're teaching them that they might be able to in turn teach it to their people. Help them, Lord, to understand what we're saying and help them to communicate these truths to their people in churches around the world. And we ask all this, O oh Lord, in Jesus' name, and we love you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Bonefire Podcast. We encourage you to subscribe wherever you stream your podcast content. Also, be sure to rate us on iTunes and Facebook so that others will know about the podcast. If you have a question that you'd like to see us address on an episode, feel free to email us at bonefireministries at gmail.com.